to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. If you guys have your Bible with you, um, or you have a Bible app on your mobile phone, I want you to turn with me to the book of Luke, and we're going to be in chapter number four this morning. And uh, i got to just tell you, I, you know, you got to know that I had planned to start a new series on parenting uh, today. In fact, uh, most of the work, you know, that I, you know, I've been doing, you know, work on this for, for several, several weeks, and most of the work's already done. In fact, I have the main kind of outline done to the, to the series, and I've got all my key texts picked out, and I've got a really cool, you know, like, you know, uh, graphics for my slides, and uh, I have a really clear idea where the series needs to go, and, and I have three relevant messages, I think, that parents, you know, we all parents need to hear and be reminded of regularly. And so for all intents and purposes, you know, the, the sermon series on parenting is ready to go, except, you know, this week as I tried to prepare for this Sunday, you know, and, and getting ready to launch this new series, I began to feel this really strong conviction in my heart to wait. I felt this deep, strong conviction in my heart to postpone the beginning of this series. You see, as I spent some time with God this week reading his word and in prayer, I began to kind of, you know, God began to really minister to me about something. And, and as I read through the book of Luke, like I've done dozens and dozens of times before, you know, I came across a text that really just kind of like stood out to me. It's something that just seemed to leap off the page. Have you ever experienced that when you've read the Bible? Um, and, and this text, you know, God used this text to really kind of grab a hold of my, my heart. And it's one of those, you know, those times where, you know, I was reading, you know, that it just grabbed a hold of me and it wouldn't, it wouldn't let go. And so it stuck with me throughout the week. I mean, I, I, I couldn't stop thinking about it. It was just on my mind. And, and suddenly this sense of urgency began to grow in my heart and in my mind about the text. And, you know, and every time I tried to set this aside and began to just kind of like go with my plan to work on the other series, you know, I got this sense in my spirit that, no, this isn't the time. And so, um, and so as strange as it may seem today, I'm just going to ask you to indulge me because, um, you know, I'm going to follow where I believe that God is, is leading this week in order to, to, to share something with you, I think, that we all kind of urgently need to hear. And so we're just going to jump right in here uh, to Luke chapter 4, verse 1. It says this. It says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted uh, by the devil. And so let me just kind of set this up real quick. Um, what's happening here is Jesus is about 30 years old. Okay, and he's about to begin his ministry career. And John the Baptist has been preaching now for, for years and months, uh, preparing the way you know, for, uh, for, for the coming of Christ. And he's baptizing people. You know, uh, and then Jesus comes to him and gets baptized in preparation for his, um, for his ministry. And when that happens, the Spirit of the Lord you know, descends upon him in bodily form, which is like, like, like they said, like a dove. And essentially, you know, Jesus is anointed for his ministry on earth. But before he actually begins his preaching and healing ministry, he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil himself. Now, there is a ton of theology behind this idea of Jesus being tempted. Okay? And there's lots of discussion about whether or not Jesus had the ability or didn't have the ability to sin, you know, because he is God. Okay? And all of those discussions are absolutely worth having, and those questions are worth exploring at some point. But there's something in this story that absolutely is relevant and important for us today. And so we're going to continue to look at the text, and it says, And he ate... Nothing during those days. 40 days he didn't eat anything. 
And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Now the book of Matthew actually expands on what Jesus says here. And, and actually Matthew records him saying, Man shall not live by bread alone, but, by, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. But then in verse 5 it says, And the devil took him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And the devil had ended every temptation. He departed from him until an opportune time. And so in this text is known as the temptation of Christ. And essentially, it's a test to demonstrate who Jesus is and his worthiness to be the Messiah. And ultimately, it proves that he is worthy to be the sacrifice for sins because he was found to be without sin. Now, if you'll notice, the essence of these temptations that Jesus faces are centered on three basic human drives. The first temptation is, it's about our physical desires, okay? As the, as the Apostle Paul even labels it, it's the lust of the flesh. Now, it might seem kind of strange to us that eating food or desiring food would be considered lust of the flesh, but any physical desire like eating or drinking or sleeping or sex or companionship, any physical desire at all that dishonors God or gets in the way of our relationship with God is no longer a natural desire. It becomes a lust of the flesh, and so Jesus didn't eat for 40 days, and he was very hungry. And being hungry is not a sin. But using power to turn a stone into bread is a gratuitous display of power to satisfy that hunger. And so instead of relying on, on the Father to meet his needs, that would have been a sin. But Jesus doesn't do that. And we need to remember that when, when we think to ourselves that our natural physical desires are just natural and they should be followed as such, we need to remember that all desires have a God-honoring context. And if we operate outside that context, it's sin. And then the second temptation you know, is about material desires. And John calls this the, the lust of the eyes. All right? And this one is really easy for us to understand because we all kind of know what, what, the, what it's like to want more. Okay, we're, you know, Jesus was tempted basically with everything, that it would all belong to him and he would have all the control of everything in the world. And we understand this temptation because we all wrestle with that. We all want more stuff. Okay, we all want more influence. We all want more power. We want bigger houses. We want, you know, nicer, newer cars. We want, you know, the latest up to date gadgets and gizmos. We, you know, that's why we continue to stuff our closets full of more clothes, even though that we have plenty of them. That's why we need storages, because we want more stuff. Materialism continually tugs on us. Now, don't get me wrong. Having a nice house and reliable transportation and nice clothes, those are not in themselves bad things. But having, you know, having material possessions and having influence in the world, that's not bad either. But when the desire for stuff and the desire for power gets in the way of our walk with God, that's when it becomes sin. Like when our desire for 
our own stuff gets in the way of our being generous, that we justify not giving something because of our materialism. You know, that's lust of the eyes. Or when, you know, we step on someone else to get where we want to go in, the com- in our community or, or at work or at school, that at, at its core is the lust for power. And again, that's, that's sin. Now, I'll say this again. There's nothing wrong with wanting to grow an influence. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be more powerful in order to get things done. There's nothing wrong with wanting stuff. But when those desires get in the way of your relationship with God, and when those desires dishonor God... That becomes a sin. And then the third temptation is a little harder to wrap your head around because, you know, it's just kind of, it's, it's really kind of uh, nebulous, but uh, it's no less important. Jesus calls this the pride of life, okay? And really at its core, the third temptation is the temptation to worship self. It's self-worship. And what I mean by this is anytime we exalt ourselves in our lives over God, Anytime we exalt ourselves over God's glory and God's plan, we're guilty of self-worship. I mean, you know, look at the, you know, the devil tells Jesus to basically jump from the building to demonstrate how important he is to God. The devil even quotes scripture about how important Jesus is. But Jesus doesn't, he doesn't go with that, right? He doesn't put God to the test. You know, you don't elevate yourself over God's will. Don't think that you're so important that you can compel God to act on your behalf is what Jesus is saying. Yes, you're important to God. Yes, God wants to work on your behalf. Yes, God wants to work in your life. And he has a plan for you. But all that is not because of who you are. It's because of who he is. Never allow yourself to elevate your importance over, over God. Never, ever allow your desire for recognition to cause you to try to overshadow God's greatness. Now, those are the temptations that Jesus faced as he started his public ministry. And, and they're the very same temptations that we all face. In fact, we are all tempted with physical desires and tempted with materialism. And we are all tempted in our own lives to try to elevate ourselves above everything, including God. And every temptation we face falls in one of these categories. And Jesus is tempted in the same way that we are. In fact, in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews notes that, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was tempted the very same way that we're tempted. Now, notice how how Jesus responds to the devil here. He responds by using scripture. He uses the word of God to rebuke the enemy. Every time the enemy tempts Jesus, he's able to give him an answer, you know, from God's own word as to why he shouldn't fall prey to this temptation. And and as I've already said, this text is so rich and so full of truth and there's so many theological ideas that we can examine in this short passage. And we can talk about these these things, you know, uh, there's many practical things we can take from this this text and, and we can absolutely spend weeks and months on just this short text alone. We can spend weeks just on each individual temptation. We could talk about the significance of what 40 days meant. And we could talk about how this encounter inspired the tradition of Lent in the church. We could go on and on and on about the obvious details that we find in this short text. But in this story, there's something specific I want to draw your attention to. As I mentioned, as I was reading this text, you know, as a part of my normal Bible reading, and like I said, I've read the book of Luke more times than I can remember because I'm always reading through the Gospels. But this time, I read the text and there was something about this exchange between Jesus and Satan 
that really just kind of grabbed the hold of my heart. There was something in this text that, that resonated with me in a way that I hadn't experienced before reading this text. You see, as I read these words, a sense of urgency began to grow in my mind and my heart as I picked up on something in this story that I've missed so many times before. Something that's always been in there in the text. It's always been there. I just haven't paid attention to it. And, and so what I want to do is I want to read it for you again one more time. And, and again, I want to see if you recognize a detail that I've overlooked so many times before. Now, as, now as I read this text, I recognize you know, the importance of this encounter. You have Jesus, the author of life himself. He comes to earth as a man, and he spends 40 days in the desert. He's physically exhausted. He is hungry, and now he comes face to face with the greatest of all enemies, Satan himself. The liar, the destroyer, the deceiver himself. And, and during this exchange, the devil makes his appeal to Jesus, and Jesus makes his defense with the word of God. In fact, the devil says in verse 3, if you are the son of God, he's taunting him. Okay? If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in, in a moment of time and said to him, To you I give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. And Jesus answered to him, It is is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot upon the stone. And Jesus answered and said, You shall not put your Lord, your God, to the test. You see, the first two temptations, the enemy makes his appeal, and Jesus immediately replies with a phrase, It is written. Now, why does he do that? Why does he say this? Why does he say, It is written? Well, Jesus says this because he looks to, in that moment, to the highest standard known to man, which is the Word of God, for direction on what to do in every situation. Jesus turns to the authority of the written word of God. Jesus says it is written because he knew that the devil knew God's word is absolutely the authority for everyone in every situation. And so Jesus says it is written. And when he says it, it's the equivalent of saying God himself said. So Jesus says it is written and then he cites scripture because it is the absolute authority for his life on earth. Every word that God speaks is our absolute authority for mankind. And so he uses this phrase, it is written to establish the authority of what he's about to say. And so after the first temptation, Jesus says, it is written, citing from the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 8.3, he says that man shall not live by bread alone. And then the second temptation, he again says, it is written, again quoting uh, Deuteronomy 6.13 and, and 1 Samuel 7.3 saying, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Jesus turns back the enemy's attack by appealing to the authority of God's Word. Jesus thwarts the devil's temptation by using Scripture. But then the devil, after having his temptations thwarted and being rebuked by Christ two times with the Word of God, notice what he does here. He changes his tactics. 
And he turns to Jesus and says, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down here, for it is written. You see, the devil, being pushed back by the Word of God, tries to turn the table on Christ. And he then begins himself to cite Scripture from the Word of God. In fact, he quotes from Psalm chapter 91, verses 11 through 12, which are the verses specifically about the Messiah. In fact, he quotes this text almost word for word, which, is, which we read this way. It says, For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now, I have read this story in Luke and also in Matthew so many times, but I have never, ever noticed this subtle little change in the dialogue between Jesus and the devil. The enemy tempts Jesus... Jesus replies with, it is written. He quotes authoritatively the word of God. He quotes scripture and the temptation fails. And then the enemy tempts him again. Jesus replies again with, it is written and quotes authoritatively the word of God. And the temptation fails. And then the enemy being thwarted two times decided to change his tactics. And what he does is he tries to use Jesus' defense against him. It's like, all right, Jesus. You keep saying it is written and you keep quoting from the Bible. Well, let me just tell you something. I can quote from Scripture too. I also know the Word of God too. It is written that He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And He's right. It is written that. It is written that God gave His angels charge over Jesus so they protect Him as the Messiah. And the devil knew this for certain because the devil had been trying to kill Jesus from the very beginning. If you remember the Christmas story when when Herod tried to kill all the little kids. And then the angel of the Lord came to Joseph and said, you need to take your family to Egypt until Herod is dead. And so the devil is like, you want to quote some scripture? I'll quote some scripture too. And so he does. And this is the part of the story that as I read this, they readily grabbed a hold of me because I was struck with this realization that I never really thought about before. And the realization is this. The enemy really knows the Word of God. Okay? And I don't know why that was a surprise to me or why that's even a new revelation to me. I mean, some of you might think, well, you're just really silly. I knew that. Okay? Well, I didn't really think about that. All right? But he does, and he knows it well, which makes sense because how many times we've heard the expression, know your enemy? Well, the, the devil is the enemy of God, and so of course he's going to know God, and he's going to know his word. And this is an important point to understand, because what you have to realize is the enemy tried to use the word of God against Jesus Christ to cause him to stumble. He tried, the devil tried to use the word of God against Jesus himself to try to get him to sin. And let me just tell you right now, if he's willing to use the word of God against Jesus, he is absolutely going to try to use the word of God against you. Okay? He will try to use the Word of God against you to try to get you to stumble and fall. Make no mistake about it, the enemy will use the Word of God against you at some point in your life. The enemy is out to steal, kill, and destroy, and he will use whatever he can get his hands on as a weapon against you, including the Word of God itself. Now that might seem really strange to you, this idea of the enemy wielding the Word of God as a weapon, but that's exactly what he does. In fact, the enemy has three basic but very effective tactics that he employs in order to use the Word of God against people. He has three basic ways that he uses the Word of God in order to cause us to stumble. And the first tactic the enemy uses is the most obvious one. It's the actually easiest one to spot. It's where the enemy tries to create doubt 
about the authority of God's word. He tries to to cast doubt on whether or not God's word actually has authority for mankind. And we see that from the very, very beginning where Eve was tempted by the enemy to eat of the fruit of the tree and she basically says, I can't do that because I'll die. But the enemy immediately tries to undermine God's authority of his word by saying, you shall not surely die. God's word doesn't have that kind of authority over you. He might have said that, but that's not how it is. God's holding out on you. He knows that if you eat the fruit of this tree, that you're going to be like him and know the difference between good and evil. You're not going to die. His word doesn't have that kind of authority over you. You can do whatever you want to do. The enemy will always try to cause doubt in the authority of God's word in our lives and the lives of other people. And in this, in this world, this world has fallen for this tactic because most people don't believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. They don't believe that it has authority for the world. For the, world. The, the world believes that the truth is relative and the Bible is just a holy book used by a particular religion and it's not authoritative for all people. So don't put your, push your morality on me. And many Christians fall for this tactic too. Some subscribe to the idea that what's true for me isn't true for everybody else necessarily. Okay? It's just what I believe. And worse yet, Christians will say that the Word of God is authoritative and that they believe that it's true, but they don't take it seriously enough to actually live like it's authoritative. Which creates a huge credibility problem for Christians in the church. The enemy is always looking for a way to undermine the author of scripture. And then the second tactic is a little more subtle. The enemy doesn't absolutely have to destroy the authority of God's word to use it as a weapon. He can actually simply create doubt and confusion about what the word of God actually says. In fact, that's exactly what he tries to do. He tries to create confusion about what God is actually saying and what he means by what he says. And again, we see that in the very beginning when the serpent comes to Eve and asks a misleading question. He, and it says, He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, the enemy knew full well exactly what God said. He knew that God said, Do not eat of one particular tree in the middle of the garden. It's the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil. But that's not what he asked. He asked her, Did God say that you shouldn't eat of any of the trees in the garden? You see, he's trying to create doubt about exactly what God said. And this right here is such an effective tactic. It is used so many times in our modern world and our modern culture. Okay? You see, this is one of the greatest assaults in the Bible. It's not that whether or not the Bible's true or not, or whether it's God's word or not. It's what did God actually say? You see, there are those people who will argue that God doesn't say repentance is a part of salvation. There are people who will say that, that God, you know, doesn't say anything about, you know, giving an increase, you know, giving of our increase, right? There are people that say that God, you know, all God says is just to love your neighbor and nothing else. There are those who, who think that the Bible doesn't actually say that Jesus is God. There are those people who, who believe that God, that Jesus never claimed to be God himself. There are those who say that the Bible doesn't talk about a literal hell, that, that, that it's not what God means when he talks about hell that he's just using a metaphor here. That he's talking about something else. There are those who argue that God's word doesn't actually define things like marriage. There are, those, or there are people who say there's only eight verses in the Bible that deal with, with things like homosexuality. Or Jesus never actually said anything about homosexual relationships. And so Jesus must be okay with that. 
The Bible doesn't say anything about unborn children or abortions. The Bible doesn't say anything about you know, our modern understanding of sexuality and genders. The Bible doesn't say, you know, you know, I'm supposed to be connected to the body of believers. It's just me and Jesus and nothing else. There are those who argue that the Bible doesn't even, like, you know, talk about a literal devil. That, that, the, that the devil that's, that's referred to in the Bible is just a metaphor for our understanding good and evil. You see, the enemy doesn't say the Bible isn't true all the time. He doesn't always say that it's not authoritative. Sometimes the enemy just confuses us of what God's word actually says and what it actually means. The enemy actually uses the word of God to create doubt and confusion about what it says. And it is very, very effective. We can see this effect and confusion in the world around us. We see this in the lives of believers. We even see it in churches and even other denominations. For example, the Westboro Baptist Church. They're very confused about what God said about love. And loving your neighbor and loving your enemies. Because their whole mission of their church is to send out the message of God's hate and judgment. They are obviously confused about what the Bible actually says. Or the, how about the Christians that call themselves universalists? They believe that somehow that God's word teaches that God's not going to judge anybody. And that all people will be saved regardless of whether they turn to Christ or not in faith. Or about the prominent mainline denomination, the, the United Methodist Church, who refused to condemn, who refused to condemn the practice of abortion, but instead, because of their understanding of Scripture, have written in a church resolution and says, I quote, We believe the path of mature Christian judgment may indicate the advisability of abortion. We support the legal right of abortion established by the 1973 Supreme Court decision. And in another one of its statements, the United Methodist Church says that one of its priorities is to keep abortion safe, legal, accessible, and rare. Now, I remind you, to this date, the up-to-date numbers are 65 million children have been killed in abortion clinics in the United States alone since 1973. It's not rare. In fact, to put this in perspective, right now there are 50 million children enrolled in school between kindergarten and 12th grade in the United States. 50 million. That means an entire generation of children have vanished from the face of the earth. And this all is supported by the leadership of a denomination and its understanding of the word of God. The devil uses the tactics of confusion and it's very effective in the world around us. And the third tactic is... The enemy will try to twist and distort God's word. He will absolutely try to twist it and distort it. You see, when he doesn't attack you know, the authority of God's word, and, and, and he doesn't simply just use it to, to mislead us by creating confusion, what he does is, is he actually resorts to twisting and distorting and changing the word of God. Notice what he says here, what he does here. He tells Jesus, For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on the on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot on a stone. And again, this is very close to the original quote. What you have to understand is, what the devil is basically saying by quoting this is, go ahead and do whatever you want. Okay? God is going to protect you. If you decide to jump off this building as a demonstration of who you really are to those people on the ground, so that they can see that you're God's son. He is going to send his angels to keep you from getting hurt. And he's going to protect you. But Jesus knew better. Jesus knew better because the devil was twisting the text out of its context. The devil used the text to say, 
Basically, no matter what you do, because of who you are, God is going to protect you. But the original context of this passage, as Jesus well knew, wasn't about forcing God to prove how valuable a person is. The context here is about people who take shelter and trust in the Lord. In fact, the entire psalm says this, beginning verse 1, it says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust... For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions. And under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will, find, you will not find terror in the night for the arrow that flies by day. Nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness. Nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side. Ten thousand at your right hand. But you will not... But it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague will come near your tent. For He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. You will tread on lions and adders, and the young lion and the serpent will not, will, you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. The way with long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. You see, this context of this passage is about people who trust and obey God. God will protect uh, them who trust and obey Him and seek refuge in Him. And what you have to understand here is if God Himself gave Jesus the order and said, jump from the building, and Christ was to do that, that is obedience and that is faith. But if Jesus was to jump off that building in order to prove who He was, that is presumption. And that is presuming upon God's grace. That's why Jesus says, don't presume on God's grace and His love. All right? Do not try to test God. All right? That's a bad thing. God tests you. You don't test God. Okay? You obey God. You trust God. But you don't put God to the test. You see, the right way to use this passage of Scripture would have been to encourage someone to faith and obedience in God. And encourage them that God will take care of them if they will just trust in Him. But the enemy uses this passage to tempt Christ to put his life in unnecessary danger, which is exactly contrary to the will of God. Now, was the enemy correct that God would protect Jesus? Well, yeah, that's correct. He would, because, because God had a clear purpose for Jesus' life on earth. It is correct that he would, he would do that. That is correct information. But let's be really clear. The information was correct, but the application of the information was flawed because the text was taken out of its original context. And we see this all of the time. We see the Bible taken out of context all the time. In fact, one of the most popular texts, one of the most popular texts used to put Christians in their place today by the world and even Christians themselves is a text, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, where Jesus says, Judge not that you not be judged. And this text is universally used by the world and many Christians as a way to prevent people who follow Christ from speaking out about certain issues 
or speaking out about sin or speaking about, about cultural issues. And the idea is, hey man, why are you judging me? Who are you to judge me? If you judge me, you're going to be judged yourself. You call yourself a Christian? You're not supposed to be judging anybody. But that completely misses the entire point of this passage. You see, Jesus does say the phrase, judge not that you be judged. But he says this in a context of an entire conversation. There's an entire conversation that surrounds this text. And the point of this conversation that Jesus is talking about is he's saying, you know, you know he's trying to make a point saying, be careful not to be a hypocrite. That's what he's saying. Don't call someone out for sexual sin if you yourself are engaged in that sexual sin. Don't call someone a liar if you are a liar, right? You know, for whatever standard that you judge against someone else, that same standard is going to be measured against you. In fact, if you read further in the text, Jesus talks about pulling the plank out of your own eye before you try to pull the little speck of sawdust out of your brother's eye. Or in other words, deal with the sin in your own life before you run around trying to correct other people's sin. This passage is about personal holiness. It's about getting right with God before you run around trying to make someone else's life right with God. This, but nowhere does Jesus say, don't say what is right is right and what is wrong is wrong. He doesn't say don't call sin, sin. In fact, we are encouraged by the broader context of Scripture to call things as they are. We are encouraged by Scripture to be ready in season and out of season to reprove and rebuke and exhort with you know, complete patience and teaching, which means we must know the difference between right and wrong and be able to speak about it. Or to speak the truth with our neighbors. Well, we ha- if you're going to speak the truth, then there has to be you know, the opposite of truth, which is falsehood. Or if we, we find out someone is caught in transgression, we who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. And we need to keep watch on our, ourselves lest we too become tempted. Again, this calls for discretion and discernment. And, and that means we have to actually be able to say what is right and what is wrong. You see, throughout the entire Bible, we are encouraged to keep an eye out for sin, both in our own lives and in the lives of people around us. We have a moral responsibility to tell people the truth and warn them about things that cause disaster in their lives. But so many people don't even, who don't even know the Bible want to take this text completely out of its context to try to limit what Christians can and cannot say to, and to whom they can say it to. Taking things out of context is, is one of the ways that the enemy twists the word of God and it's so very effective. But that's not all. He also encourages people to actually change the Word of God. To take what the Word of God and actually change in what it actually says. Now, I'm not talking about like interpretive discretion like using the word you instead of thee and thou. I'm talking about the wholesale change in the text by deleting certain passages of Scripture. You know, wholesale changes like adding texts or books or even translating or, or interpreting Scripture based on preconceived self-serving ideas. Again, we see this in the world around us. Excuse me. The New World Translation produced by the Watchtower Tract Society is a prime example of this. There is a translation committee that began, okay, the translation process of their Bible with a firmly established doctrine of the Jehovah's Witness Church. And they had this doctrine in mind. And so they rewrote the entire Bible to fit that doctrine, They systematically rewrote the Bible to get rid of every passage in the Bible that that demonstrates that Jesus is God in the flesh. 
And they did so to uphold the doctrine that they already had established. And then you have the LDS Church, whose founders gave up on their own translation of the Bible, but instead focused on three additional books that they wrote that claimed to be Scripture right alongside with the Bible. And they interpret the King James Bible in light of these three other books. They use the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants and, and the Pearl of Great Price as the basis of interpreting and understanding the Bible regardless of what the Bible actually says. And then you have this. This right here is the first, what's called first gay Bible. They call it the Queen James Version. And simply, it's just the King James Version of the Bible with some specific changes to it. And the editors, though they haven't like identified who their editors are, the editors have reinterpreted eight verses in the Bible that deal with homosexuality. The book is edited and produced specifically to validate the homosexual lifestyle. The, the, in fact, the editors, who, by the way, like I said, they, they, they won't tell you who their translators are, they themselves say the anti-LGBT Bible interpretations commonly cited uh, only cite eight verses in the Bible that they interpret to mean homosexuality is a sin. Eight verses in a book of thousands. The Queen James Bible seeks to resolve interpretive ambiguity in the Bible as it pertains to homosexuality. We edited those eight verses in a way to make homophobic interpretation impossible. Or in other words, we don't like or agree with the way the Bible has actually been been translated all throughout church history by overwhelming consensus of scholars throughout history. We don't like the interpretation even though the textual criticism has revealed a stunning consistency on this issue across thousands and thousands of manuscripts. We don't like what the Bible says and so we're just going to change what it says to fit our lifestyle decisions. And my friends, that is just the beginning. Okay? This is just the beginning of how God's word is being distorted and trampled on. This is just the beginning of how people simply are just looking at the Bible as a way to validate their choices rather than using it as a guide to follow in their own lives. In fact, there's two movements, modern day movements right now that I want you to be aware of that are happening right now in Western culture. And they create a lot of confusion about the Bible. The first one is called the anti-Pauline theology. Now that's a fancy term. But it's got a really simple meaning. What it means is, we're just going to get rid of everything that relates to Paul. Okay? Because there are some who are in the minority who promote that the idea of Christian, Christian theology needs to remove the influence of Paul. They essentially believe that all the writings of Paul are not scripture. And that they are not authoritative for our lives and we just need to get rid of them. In fact, many followers say that the teachings of Jesus and the teaching of Paul actually are at odds with one another. That they're not teaching the same thing. They're not congruous. They don't mesh. And so the solution is to take all the writings of Paul, just throw them in the trash. And so there's no more Romans, no more Ephesians, no more 1st and 2nd Corinthians, no more, you know, 1st and 2nd Timothy. And just remove those parts of the Bible, the writings of Paul, and, and that we don't agree with. Then the second movement is even more radical and specific. And it's actually gaining a lot of momentum in popular culture. It's called red-letter Christianity. And what this simply means is the only thing that matters in your Bible is what you see in red letters in a red-letter Bible. Red-letter Bibles put the words of Jesus in red so it's easier to see what's actually Jesus saying as opposed to what everybody else says. And what these people say is that, that it... All that matters, all that matters in Scripture is just what is actually in those red letters. Only what Jesus says matters. 
And so what they want to do is they, they want to ignore the fact that Jesus is God, okay? And as such, he actually had a lot to say, you know, because he's eternal. He had a lot to say in the Old Testament because he made appearances in the Old Testament as well. But they focus on what Jesus says in the New Testament. And it doesn't matter what Paul says. It doesn't matter what James said or what, or what John said. It doesn't matter, you know, what Jude said. All that matters is what Jesus says. The only thing that matters is what Jesus says. And again, the argument is, well, Jesus never said anything about, you know, homosexuality or, or, or gay marriage. And, and that's right. He doesn't say specifically something about that particular, you know, you know, variation of the issue. But he didn't say anything about incest either. And he doesn't say anything else about polygamy or pornography or pedophilia or technology addiction or AIDS, for that matter. There are a lot of things that Jesus didn't specifically address or talk about. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't have a discernible will and opinion in his word about those topics. You see, groups like this seek to limit the amount of influence that the Bible has in their everyday lives. All we care about is what Jesus himself says. We don't care about anything else. And this right here, this is a ruse to create ambiguity and confusion. Again, this is just a device of the devil to distort and twist the truth around of God's word. Like I said, if the devil's going to try to use the word of God against Jesus himself, he will absolutely try to use it against you. And he will use these three tactics. And, and, and we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks on this particular subject. But the big question is, the big question that we have to come to, and I think that we need to ask and come face to face with this, how do we defend ourselves against this kind of an attack? I mean, we know that the enemy is trying you know, to tempt us I mean, we know it's him when, when we experience things like lust and jealousy and pride and greed, right? We know it's the enemy when we're tempted to drink too much. We know it's the enemy when we're tempted to flirt, right, or look at the wrong kind of websites. We know it's the enemy when we're tempted to gossip, you know, or talk to that person that we're not supposed to be talking to. But how do we resist the enemy's attacks when it's harder to see? When he uses the Bible against us. I mean, some of his arguments really sound very convincing, like judge not lest ye be judged, right? Or like, you know, God is love, so how can a loving God condemn, you know, a good person to hell? I mean, some of those things really make sense to us on the outside. How do we stand against the enemy's attacks like this and not fall prey to his schemes? Well, what we need to do is we need to be like Jesus. And that means we need to firmly, firmly know the Word of God. We need to firmly know what the Bible actually says. That's how you beat the enemy. That's how you keep him from using the word of God against you. That's how you get victory in this area and every other area that Satan comes against you is knowing the word of God. We have to know the word of God. Paul says that the word of God is our sword, that we use it to fight off the enemy. It is our weapon against the devil. We have to know how to use it. Otherwise, he'll just take it from us and use it on us. And that's one of the tragedies that can befall someone who owns a firearm is to have someone take their own gun from them and use it on them due to the lack of training. I mean, it's one thing to get shot. It's a whole other thing to be shot with your own gun. If you don't know how to use the sword of the word, you're just asking the devil to use it against you. And believe me, he will. That's why there's so much garbage and misinformation out there in the world. In books, some strange books, and the internet. Because there are people that they're just prone to believe whatever. 
They're just prone to believe whatever because they really don't know the Word of God. Seriously, there are people who promote the idea that Adam had a first wife before Eve. There's some people that say that that's a biblical idea. There are people who, who think that the idea of the fall of Adam and Eve didn't involve a tree and fruit. It actually involved a sexual act between you know, Eve and the devil and Adam and the devil. There are people who promote the idea that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are just manifestations of just Jesus. There are people who, who promote the idea that the Bible teaches the atoning death of Christ is enough to save people even though they don't know or don't accept Jesus by faith. There are people who even teach that the Bible talks about encounters with the UFOs. There's a lot of garbage out there and there's some ridiculous ideas and some of them sound really ridiculous and some of them actually sound plausible. There, but there are, and there's a lot of people out there that just believe whatever they're told. So how do you know the truth? How do you discern the truth from one of the enemy's schemes? We just have to know the Bible. That's what you have to do. It has to become a part of who you are, which means, which means you need to read it. <laughs> you need to read it. You need to study it. You need to meditate on it. You need to memorize parts of it, you know, certain verses. You need to double check what people tell you the Bible says, even me. You need to actually go read it for yourself and say, wait a minute, he said this, let me check and see what that actually means. You need to make the Bible a part of your daily life. It's the very source of your spiritual sustenance. We need daily to be in God's word. And you don't just need to read it, you need to think about it. You need to meditate on it. You need to ask yourself questions like, what does that passage mean? What's the context of that passage? What, what, what about that word right there? Why does he say that? Why does he use that particular word? You need to continually be thinking about and processing the word of God. It's been said that dig as what digestion is to food, meditation is to the word of God. It helps you to process and internalize, that, internalize it and make it a part of who you are. And then, you know, not only must you read it and meditate on it, you need to do it. You need to live it out. You need to use what you've learned. You need to allow yourself to be changed by the word of God. That's why we're told to be doers of the word and not hearers only. You see, it's one thing to know all about a weapon. To know its history, you know, to know what it's made out of, to know the theory behind it. It's a whole other thing to know, actually know how to use it and practice with it. I don't care how much you know about shotguns. The real question is, can you use it? That requires hands-on doing. And that is what we need to do with the Word of God. We need to put it in practice. We need to do what it says. We need to do what God tells us to do. We need to be doers of the Word instead of hearers only. And if we'll do that, then, if we'll read the Word of God and meditate on the Word of God, and we will do what it says, we will grow strong in how much we know the Word of God. And if we'll do that, we'll be able to stand up against the devil when he comes against us and we'll be able to confidently deflect the enemy's schemes. And we'll be able to say, just like Jesus did, I'm not going to fall for that. I know better. For it is written. Now, here's your take home for this, for this week. We're kicking off Vacation Bible School tomorrow. And the reality is the enemy is working uh, always to try to derail our efforts to reach anybody, much less to reach kids. One of the things... That, that Kim and I have figured out is like, you know, there's just conflict that suddenly surrounds VBS the closer we get there because the enemy is continually trying to like dissuade us and dishearten us and discourage us, all right? Now, you might think, well, what does this have to do with me, okay, and knowing the Word of God? Well, actually, 
these are actually kind of interconnected. Because what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you this week to focus and commit to focus on two things. I'm going to ask you to spend time with God in His Word every single day for at least 10 minutes. Every single day. Just take out your Bible, whether it's the first thing in the morning or the last thing you do before you go to bed or like at lunchtime or whatever. Take 10 minutes and spend it with God and read your Bible every day. Read your Bible or listen to your Bible because like most people have like smartphones and you can listen to the Bible on that. All right, but listen or read your Bible at least 10 minutes every day. Okay? And then after you read your Bible, I'm going to ask you to take a moment and pray. And I want you to pray for things that you normally pray for. Pray for your family, pray for your kids, stuff like that. But I also, and I also want you to pray for about what you read, that God would like really let that you know, settle in your heart. But I'm also going to ask you to pray every day this week for Vacation Bible School. Okay, that you would commit to pray every day for the kids, that you, you, you would pray for the workers, that you'd pray for the directors. Okay, I mean, you know, especially like my wife, she really spends a lot of time on this. That you would pray that God would radically change the lives of the kids in this, in this community. Okay, that's what I'm asking you to do, is to read your word. Spend time with God 10 minutes a day. And then once you wrap that up, take, 10 minute, take a few minutes, pray and pray about BBS. And let's just watch and learn how, how God changes the world around us as we learn to wield the power of, of his word. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for, for your word. We thank you for your grace and your unending mercy in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us a testimony, a witness that we can, we can rely on. And we thank you that you've given us a preponderance of evidence that we can actually come back to and we can decipher and learn what you actually really meant and what you actually really said. That we can know the context, the historical context. We know that we can know the literary context of the Bible. That we can actually read and, and we can study and we can actually find out exactly what you have to say and the truth. And sometimes the truth hurts. Sometimes the truth isn't what we want to hear. Sometimes it's, it's contrary to what, what we want. But ultimately, help us to submit to the truth that we find in that. I pray, Lord God, that we would just passionately pursue you, that we would, we would take seriously our time in the Word, that we would, we would allow it to touch our lives and allow it to touch our hearts, Lord, that you would transform us from the inside out with your Word through the Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would send the Holy Spirit to just prepare our hearts and help us to discern right from wrong, to be able to rightly divide your Word and make it a part of who we are and that we'd be able to be the light and the salt that you want for us to be in this world. I pray for this congregation. I pray for everybody that, that has a need that you would meet that. I pray, Lord, that you'd raise up a people in this congregation that would go out and storm the gates of hell and that would go out to share the love and the hope of the healing and the healing of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.